Stay hungry, stay foolish. Thanks again to our partners over at Zai. Zai is a global fintech that's innovating within its area of expertise, building integrated financial services for digital native and non-native businesses. Check them out at hellozai.com. Whether you're building your career or a business of your own, you have a big advantage. Nobody ever sees the rebel coming. The established players in any industry are always fat, sluggish, and content. You're defiant, swift, and hungry. Because your ideas are daring and probably defiant, you'll blindside the competition. By the time they catch on, you've picked their pockets, stolen their best customers, and won the admiring press. As a rebel, you will meet resistance, but you look forward to it. Rebellion is an act of war. The established order always counterpunches and usually wears brass knuckles. Rare breeds don't get what they want by adapting to the conventional rules. Instead, they use the traits, often considered shortcomings, as tools for creation and growth. Combining examples and practical tools, our guest today identifies seven vices turned virtues, rebellious, audacious, obsessed, hot-blooded, weird, hypnotic, and emotional, to help disruptors and trailblazers discover their inner rare breed in work and in life. We welcome co-author of Rare Breed, a guide to success for the defiant, dangerous, and different, Sonny Bunnell. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. I thought we'd start perhaps with your origin story. You say a motto, which is the name of your company, is a short statement that encapsulates the beliefs of a person or organization. It's a war cry. The name had symbolic significance and communicated the kind of company you and your co-author Ashley wanted to build. Let's start with the launch of Motto, and I'll tee you up here with a beautiful quote of which I'll do many today, Sonny. You said, after a while, we, you and Ashley, started to keep score. Times you were sabotaged, 16. Times you got fired for the exact reason you were hired, 20. Times you were told your ideas were absurd, hundreds. Times you were written off, thousands. You were learning the hard way that vision, dangerous thinking, and defiance of the status quo come with a price. Well, I think our story is one of unconventional success, which you have you know, touched on there. Our path to global business and brand leadership was a battlefield of doubt and rejection. Ashley and I met in a snowball fight in our early teens. Uh, we've grown up together, we went to college together, and in our early 20s, dropped out of college together to start Motto uh, with $250 and a dream. We had no prior business experience. Uh, everyone was telling us that we would fail. And so you when you start out young and you start out with a little bit of naivety and you have a lot of voices around you telling you that you cannot do the impossible, I think those voices began to, to weigh on you. And during a very low point in the business, we were probably a year or two in, barely making ends meet. We were being fired for the very same, re same reasons that we were being hired. Uh, my father called us rare breeds and he encouraged us to own who we are, 
to succeed because of who we are, not despite who you are. And it was the bit of the shot in the arm that we needed at that point to say, well, what if you could take the parts of yourself that other people criticize, traits that they call defiant, dangerous, and different, and turn those same traits that you're being fired for into your superpower? How could you not only ignite that within your own life and career, but how could leadership and organizations also identify and understand that these rare breeds were often the keys to their innovation? And that was more than a decade ago. We kept that tiny phrase, that 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 phrase rare breed tucked it away, actioned it, built our entire career with that mantra and have since led motto to become one of the top uh, global branding companies in in the world that works with leadership teams, C-suite teams to help them align around how to push boundaries, how to break the rules, how to activate positive change inside companies. And Motto is just one incarnation of uh, the ideas that drive us. Another is obviously this book, uh, Rare Breed, A Guide to Success for the Defiant, Dangerous, and Different. We wrote Rare Breed in 2019 as a homage to everything that we had learned, all the black eyes that we had taken. And more importantly, we need we knew that other people like us who had become silenced or awakened at different points within their life and career needed a book like this. So we wrote Rare Breed as as a clarion call for those who had felt misunderstood, but had deep power and and capability to offer the world and, and how to educate them on that these were not flaws. These were superpowers. I love the way you pivoted as well. So you identified yourself. So you understood yourselves. You understood that that was a superpower. You didn't do what the status quo wanted of you. You actually embraced who you truly are. And you say that you turned your attention not just to branding, but to leadership and identified a connection between the spirit of a person at the helm of a company and the brand experience that a company created for its customers. And this is where the virtues and vices, you say the virtues or vices of that person inevitably made the company thrive, turn sideways or fall apart. And this fascination with leadership quickly became the linchpin of your branding business. You became experts at helping leaders harness their own superpowers, turning their business and brands into the rare breed or standout in their own category. I love that because that's a very unusual approach. Usually we have people who an organization will bring in a, a traditional branding company who has a legacy. And as you as I said in the intro, they'll they'll kind of see things the way they always were, and they won't usually challenge the status quo, which is needed more than ever. But what I love what you do is you, you unlock the person behind the brand. And that includes if you don't like what you unlock, you let it go and you don't work with that person as well. Maybe you'll tell us a bit about that experience. Yeah, I think that we saw an overwhelming lack of acceptance for crazy people and ideas that didn't fit the mold. And over 15 years, we started to see a pattern emerge that not only were the crazy ideas, the ideas that should be uh, celebrated and worked upon, but that the people that were trying to champion those ideas were often pushed out. And so we've made it our life's work to go inside organizations to not only help leadership and work shoulder to shoulder with leaders who perhaps are running a rare breed organization that also need to communicate that vision even more effectively, but also for companies that lack or have lost a little bit of that spirit along the way. 
And they need that jolt. They need that jolt of, of, of awakening the rebel within and then ultimately awakening the rebels within their team and the rare breeds within their team in order to lift whatever sermon it is, the big idea that they're trying to deliver, make that, you know, obviously grow and, and, and be more sticky along the way. What we found is that there are so many organizations out there right now that do not understand the rare breed. As a matter of fact, they want them, they want to hire for them, but they don't know what to do when they get there because they believe that bringing in a troublemaker is what they, what they begin to deem them as is that it leads to culture carnage. But in our experience, it's the opposite. That's true. It's, it's the mindset that has to change. And then the environment has to change. And then we go in to help them define the tools and the experiences that need to happen in order to activate that change, you know, ignite that rare breed within hire for that, but also leverage that talent within the organization. And ultimately what that does is culture is horizontal, right? It's, there's no end in beginning. And what we have to often do is go in and sort of understand the DNA of that culture, but also figure out where those fracture points work to, uh, you know, solidify them and then figure out how that ultimately impacts both internal and external inside out brand, because that's what you're doing. You're trying to harness the power of who they are, trying to educate the teams and organizations on what it, what it means to have rare breed talent. And then ultimately the impact that that's going to have on innovation and your ultimate brand and experience out in the market and the, and the, the meaning that you begin to take on in the, in the hearts and minds of your, of your audience. So it's a, it's a big job that we do, but one that is incredibly rewarding when we go in and see the transformation or able to really help, help organizations galvanize around some of these core themes and ideas. I think the even taking one step back from that, we wrote Rare Breed for the individual. So we wrote Rare Breed for the change maker who had always felt a bit misunderstood. They ha- they're they're continuously we get emails and letters all day long from people who have just wandered the earth trying to find de- various homes and they plug in for a minute and then they're cast out and they plug in for a minute and they're cast out and they can't understand why they're fired for the same reasons they're hired or why they can't find a place that understands them. And so the last few years of our business, since we un- you know, unveiled Rare Breed and, and, and wrote Rare Breed and, and put it out on the market, uh, was that it it started with the individual of people then being able to recognize the traits within themselves. But then we started to see it go up to the leadership level and leadership teams and CEOs and founders were reading the book and going, okay, I need to see this a different way. And so we are, are the bridge between those two places, you know, the employee and the person and the team and the, and the leadership and trying to be a bridge to make th- those two uh, you know, categories work better together and fuse together to to make positive change. I have so much empathy for the status quo, certain parts of the status quo, we'll, we'll talk about how you know, there's there's certain people you don't want to work with. If you think about how, how they were raised, essentially, their, 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 their standard breed, if you want to call it that the standard breed was raised was raised to manage a company that had an existing revenue stream that was repeatable. You know, a lot of I find a rare breed person are are eccentric compared to the status quo, but they're not eccentric. They're usually raised by parents who helped them embrace who they were, or they stumbled into who they were, or they stumbled into a job and they were lucky that helped them embrace who they were. But 
unfortunately, we don't see enough of that. And then one of the reasons and drives me for this show, Sonny, as well, is to help people realize that they're not the ones that's broken. The system is broken. The system doesn't actually help the individual that's different, that thinks different, that's neurodiverse, that's diverse from even a gender perspective, doesn't help that because it's built for an old world. And I think we're at this, you talked about the interface, we're at this interface between that old world and a new order emerging from the chaos of the old order. I, I really feel that's the point in the universe we're at this point in time. And that's why I love what you do about educating both the existing and the emergent. I think that we are in a world where some of this is changing because you have voices like us out there demanding that it be changed. And I also think that you have more rare breeds finally leaning into all of who they are, not just the pretty parts and realizing what the gifts that they have to offer the world. And you're right. I think it's unlocked at different points in our life. You know, if we think back historically to the very first eyes that we ever look into, it's the eyes of our parents, right? Or a mentor or even a, you know, a guardian, right? And they have hopes and dreams for us that we've not even lived yet. And sometimes those hopes and dreams are incongruent with who we're meant to become. And what I have seen and read and heard from, from the many people that reach out is that at these different points in their life, and I mentioned this earlier, they're either silenced or awakened. What I think the difference is between a rare breed and everyone else is while everyone else is suppressing those pain in the ass qualities, rare breeds have finally leaned into them. They've let them off the leash to vandalize tradition. They know that what is within them is, is gifts. What we are trying to avoid when we talk about rare breeds entering the workplace is the, or, or any career at that, at that point is to avoid leaning into the dark side of these traits. The interesting thing about the seven traits in the book is that they are as powerful as they are perilous. So when we were writing it, we knew that each trait had to have the dark side. And what we were trying to educate was that a lot of people who perhaps had been oppressed or suppressed at different points in their life were then getting into trouble because they were, they were, they were leaning into dark sides of the trait. They didn't know how to harness the most positive attributes of those traits. And so what we are seeing specifically in the workplace is that if we can hire for rare breed talent and they are already in a place where they're somewhat, I wouldn't say moldable. That's not the word that we're looking for because they're often unmoldable. But what you're looking for is someone who's just a little bit more self-aware of saying, okay, I understand that this trait can either unlock this door or close this door. This trait can either hire me or fire me. Once you begin to have power and know the secrets of that power, I believe that you can benefit from it at an operational level. And I think that you can benefit from it as an employee and as a career level. And when those two worlds are kind of coming together and igniting and, and as one, we're finding that is where the deepest exciting innovation is happening and where change is really occurring. And so that's the work that we try to do is the intersection of those two points. You know, we, as I said, we wrote the book more for the individual, but it's now laddered up to the organizational level and organizations are now asking us to come in and kind of educate them on how do I think with a rare breed mindset? How do I hire for rare breed talent? And most importantly, how do I unlock this innovation within my company and brand? And that has been a very rewarding past few years for us as the, as the work that we embark on. And that duality, I love that duality that 
that ripples throughout the book. It's, you know, I, I always had the idea of yin and yang, uh, that chaos and order symbol in my head, because it's, it's the, it's the holistic approach of those two things and helping the person, you know, if you are the virtuous, uh, rare breed, lean into your shadow. And then if you are more shadow side, lean into the virtuous part of it. And then you'll actually have more success. I, I think we'll come back to that because we're going to talk about the virtues. One thing that happens sunny oftentimes is we go deep on this show, we go for a long time, compared to a lot of podcasts that maybe go for 20 minutes. And sometimes we lose leaders. So we have a lot of leaders, CEOs who listen to the show, and they'll go, I, I, I was able to grab the first 20, 30 minutes. And I so I wanted to get this question in early for those leaders. So those people, this and this, this, what we'll do in the book, we'll, go, we'll kind of follow roughly the arc of the book as much as we can, there's loads in the book. But for those leaders, trying to understand the rare breed is very difficult, because they're used to managing people who will be who march in lockstep, they'll have this been be trained for the old world industrial era, and they'll do what they're told. But in doing that, you lose the creative thinking, you, you lose them kind of going, what if those kind of questions? So what do you tell in those workshops? What do you say to the leader? That's an interesting one. How do you change their mindset, particularly if they're used to the old old world order? Well, I think rare breeds have been with us since the beginning of time. If you think about you know, one of the most famous biblical stories of all time is Eve taking the bite of the apple as an act of rebellion. We think of rebels like Joan of Arc, you know, um, and, and there's rebels today like Greta Thunberg and, you know, look at Elon Musk with audacious thinking of putting people on Mars. You know, these are, these are rare breeds who have shown themselves time and time again throughout history, throughout time to move the world forward, who have been deemed crazy, who have been deemed um, too audacious, too weird, too emotional, too rebellious to succeed in the world that we have. But they are the change makers. They are the people that move the world forward. Rare breeds are those of us, despite these seven unconventional traits and counter and counterintuitive traits and often misunderstood traits, are actually gifts to companies and the keys to innovation. Rare breeds are not to be confused with people who come in and wreak havoc on your company. These are people who throw shade to the status quo, but don't bring culture carnage along with them. That is what a rare breed is. To be defiant and dangerous and different is just to be crazy enough that you are unordinary among the kind. You don't fit the mold. You stand out amongst the herd. You look the status and quo in the eye. And as you said, punch it with brass knuckles. What, we're, what we have, though, is a system that doesn't understand rare breed talent. And so what we're trying to do is to educate rare breed thinkers, but also to equip uh, companies and leadership teams with the, uh, the mindset that it requires to harness the power of that type of individual because they don't fit the mold. They don't, they don't tick all the boxes. You know, they, and, and you need people who do. You need both. You can't have a company just full of rare breeds. Like you'll never get anything done. You have to have people who steady the ship, but you also have to have people who question where the ship is going. And so you 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 need both of those types of individuals. And I think organizations just need to learn that it's about harnessing unconventional talent so that you can win in the landscape that, that excuse me, that we're in right now, which is frantic, hot sauce on the brain. You know, people are panicking. Uh, 
the, the, the land is shifting underneath us. Markets are shifting quickly. You know, you have the great resignation, the great migration, you have people resigning at rapid rates. Like we are in the thrust of the talent wars. How do you win those talent wars? Well, you create, you change your environment. See right now, most of the environments that we go into unequivocally are unequipped to be innovative at all. They're slow, they're stodgy, they're molasses. They're, they're, they're the, they're their own enemy. They are the problem. So if we can sort of recalibrate, then I think you get into a scenario where you're able to affect change much greater and with less friction because you're not trying to tick all the boxes. You're trying to tick all the right boxes for innovation. You're trying to create environments and conditions where people like that can thrive. And a lot of times, most of the organizations, unfortunately, that we go into don't, don't have that. They, they, they have a lot of work to do. And that's why we have jobs, you know, is to go in to help organizations think differently, um, to change the way that they do things, and also to be inspiring for once, you know, and, um, and excite the people that work there so that they don't want to necessarily leave within three months of being in the job. You know, it's, it's, you're not meant to, I don't believe, um, st- stay and stay stodgy and not be able to grow. I think it's important for people to move on, but I think that you want to make sure that the people that you bring in, that organizations are thinking of their growth as well, not just the company's bottom line, but the growth of the individual that's contributing to you to help build your vision. How can they be a, a small spoke in the wheel to that, but also that you are acknowledging and recognizing that their growth within your company is just as important as your need for them. So it, it has to be omnidirectional in that way. And I think that a lot of people get it wrong. You know, they're just like, let me just hire a bunch of people and and and, and put butts in the seat. But it should be a much, much more uh, intentional process in which that happens. Yeah. And, and many of our listeners are probably nodding along and going, yeah, we need that. We need that where I work. But oftentimes, you know, you mentioned about the rare breed feeling about going to one place and then going to the next place and getting fired for the reason they were hired. And there's also a little bit of call it confirmation bias where I'll, I'll, because I'm disappointed in the past that I've been let go for the very reasons they thought they hired me. I'll often be biased in what I hear in an interview. So I might interview with a CEO or an organization and I'll kind of be I'll, I'll I'll be a little bit more educated than the last time, and I'll ask a couple of questions, but there'll be red flags, and I'll ignore them because I want this time to work. And I really have so much empathy for those people who really try, and then they end up. What ends up happening oftentimes is you feel you're the problem. You feel you don't fit in the workplace at all. Then you start bringing it into relationships and families and stuff like that, and it starts to get at your mental health. And I think that's one of the real drivers of this work that we do. Maybe you'll share any experiences you've had on that before we'll get into the virtues and the different mantras. I think it's up to the organization to ask better questions. It's not necessarily up to the candidate to try to solve these problems alone. It's up, it, it, it's up to the organization to equip themselves to ask better questions of what they're hiring for. And there's an X factor that you're hiring for. You just have to be educated enough to notice what it is that you're looking for, because on a piece of paper, they might not look 
perfect. You know, um, they may be perfectly imperfect in all the, in all the right ways. Um, and it's our job to, to do that. I think the corporate world faces three overlapping existential crises, uh, or problems. First, it hasn't fully wised up to the reality that it's no longer making the rules. That's, that's, that's number one. Uh, second, I think corporations are becoming agents of social change and they're not wired for it. They want predictability and profits. And the final one I think is very simple. The thinking that got us here won't get us there. And we live in a world where, you know, glaciers are melting, you know, there's a viral pandemic, there's growing extremism, there's artificial intelligence, there's demand for racial and social injustice, uh, social justice. And to meet that future, companies need innovative minds and they need rare breeds who think around corners, who are going to break stuff, who are going to giggle when they stomp conventional wisdom in the dirt. And they don't care necessarily who they offend or what territory that they invade. The piece of that that's very important though is harnessing that in the most positive way so that those mavericks, those artists, those skeptics, those philosophers, they 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 solve the problems that no one else can. But if if Ivy League pe- pedigrees aren't necessarily going to get there, and not that they're going to stop being valuable, but they aren't the only currency that matters. And I just think we're in the world of change where we have to be keen on what that means for us in this new in this new business landscape. I mean, even from 2019 to 2020 to 2021, and now 2022 the amount of chaos that has ensued amongst businesses and brands is, is staggering. So what are you going to do? Pull a, pull a page from the old playbook? Or are you going to rip up that rule book and, and think differently and, and go in a different direction? That's, that's what we have to do in order to thrive. You know, Everybody is in dire need of relevancy and to be able to keep head above water. And the way that you're going to do that is not by falling back on old tricks this we're not in the same show anymore i love that and i love i love the authenticity of motto of the company and the way that like for example in the in the call it the old era the industrial revolution era or even 50 years ago or less even you could mask the authenticity of your brand through advertising and a customer wouldn't know any better through, you know, social media didn't exist. We didn't have that back channel to understand what's really going on, trust pilot, all those type of things. And I love that. That's, that's what I really like about the motto story is that not only do you unearth who the person behind the brand or the people behind the brand are to unearth that true authenticity, but then if you don't like what you unearth, you don't work with that person as well. I, I loved, for example, and I'm jumping ahead here, the story where the CEO, a, a gentleman, or not so much a gentleman actually, was quite rude to his colleague, the CMO on the call. And you guys called it because you, you talked about a company being a, an agent for social change, but so can you, if you're a service company serving that company, you have the right to go, hey, wait a second, because if you don't, who will? I think that there's nowhere to hide. And when you hire Motto, 
you're hiring a company that built its entire ethos around purpose, about being purpose-driven. That is what we started the company. That's what a motto is. A motto is a war cry. It's a, a statement of belief. And so many of the companies that we worked with and continue to work with are purpose-driven. There's only been you know, a few instances in the history of our work where uh, a company has come in and, and been quite inauthentic. You know, One, one uh, story comes to mind of a company that wanted to uh, sell honey and the the story was they were going to source this honey from third world countries and talk about the farmers. And, you know, it was this sort of really elaborate story that was very powerful and very inspiring. And when we came to do a little bit of the immersion work, we said, well, we'd love to visit the farms where these people work and, and see how the honey is made. And he said, no, 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 no. We're not going to do that. He said, that's just the story we want to tell. We're just going to like repackage this from some. And I said, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. Uh, you know, you, why are we telling it? This is like a, this is just like a lie. Um, and, and, and that put us in a very difficult position because, you, you know, it, it, well, maybe not difficult, but one where you, you kind of have, you know, $500,000 on the table and they're just saying, well, just brand it. And you're a small startup, a struggling company. And you have to make an ethics choice. It's really, it's really, uh, you know, something to, to that I think a lot of people could potentially face and would have maybe looked the other way because money, money talks. But in that particular scenario, we just said absolutely not. We we cannot brand this. Uh, but I think there are bigger things at play here, which is, you know, most of our work is is focused on good companies that. Uh, you know, need a little bit of help. They need a little bit of refinement. Their heart's in the right place. Perhaps the purpose, the vision, the values, the brand's ethos. Some of the big idea has gotten you know disconnected along the way, and they need someone to come back in and refocus that. And then ultimately, what then needs to happen with that big idea is for your team to galvanize around it and rally around it. And so, a lot of our work is really geared towards figuring out what we need to say, and then who we need to lift that message higher. So for us, it's two pieces: it's purpose. It's about defining that authentic purpose. And then it's also about um, the identity of the company and who then lifts that message and, and supports that big idea. And those are the rare breeds. Those are the rare breeds that you want on the team. So how you get there though, how you get to that sort of authentic, co- cohesive story is you begin with uh, the purpose. You begin with the right mindset. You begin with that rare breed mindset. You then apply that to how you speak about and you talk about whatever the big idea is. And then you ultimately ladder that up and down throughout your company uh, from a culture standpoint and from a message standpoint, and ultimately from a hiring standpoint, so that the people that you bring into the organization, those rare breed talent, the people that work for you and believe in the cause, ultimately uh, make that sing for you out in the market. And that's what you really want. And just a lot of times the brands that we work on, there's just a little bit of disharmony at one of those junctures. Uh, and we are brought in for different pieces of that, depending on where they're at in their own journey and where they're at in their own company. You know, we have clients as big as Virgin and Google and Microsoft. And we also have clients who are scaling and, you know, disruptors in the market. Uh, one of them just became a, a billion dollar valuation unicorn status. They're scaling, they're growing, they're changing the world, they're changing how the world works. And we're just a, a piece of that rocket fuel, uh, the combustion that allows them to tip upward and go hit the moon. That's what we, we do. We're, we're just, we're shoulder to shoulder with them and whatever journey that they're on to make sure that, um, they reach those goals and aspirations. 
You mentioned that company with the honey. I've seen that recently. The, a company in Ireland, similar thing. It was a brand branding got them massive investment to scale the product. Scale a, a lie a, sometimes. Is yeah, I raised it with a couple of friends, and and they were like, "Oh well, Aiden, you're being a bit too, you know, this is business." And I'm like, "Going, going well." It depends on, it? on how. <laughs> yeah, well, I I, I, I think, think the truth you know, shakes it shakes out, right? What I think you're seeing I right now so. is. Yeah, I think I think there's as I said earlier there's nowhere to hide. I think companies that that treat people badly, I think companies that don't do the right thing, eventually it comes out. And so, you know, I encourage companies to really think about how they treat their team, who they're looking for, you know, how they how they hire, how they onboard, how they make people feel part of the organization and the belief systems of that organization and really walk the walk. And I know it's so hard to do. It's so easier said than done. Um, but it, it, you know, I've seen it done. I've been in some amazing, amazing companies that I've seen firsthand that it's real and I know that it exists. And I've been in companies with rare breeds who are thriving and innovating and doing remarkable things. And to have a front row seat of that is, is, is I love my job. You know, I love being able to work at that level and see, watch the theater play out. It's, it's an, and be a, a small part of their journey of, of, of changing the world. And that is so important for the work that I do because every day is new and every company is new and every leader that we work with and their team is new. And, you know, they may all, maybe they might do similar things to one another, but the beautiful thing is they operate, they think, act, and communicate in very different ways from one another. And like the DNA, the snapshot of that company and who's within that company is truly the differentiators. And, you know, you can feel it. You can, you know, if there's psychological safety, uh, the minute that you're working with their leadership team, and if there isn't, you try really hard to create it uh, so that we can actually make, make um, moves and, and make innovation happen. It's, you need that, you need that safety to be able to dream and fail and dream and fail repeatedly without being fear that you're going to lose your job. It doesn't mean to be particularly uh, naive about it, right? We, you know, it's somebody's just failing repeatedly. Of course, that's that's a different conversation. But in a business like ours, specifically, that's hinged around creativity and bold thinking and big idea making, like that doesn't come without risk. Every idea that we put on the table has risk, uh, and you know. But on the other side of that could be huge rewards. Some companies are just afraid to take the leap. And so what I and Ashley try to do is go into companies to give them a little bit of courage that it's a, it can, you can fail and recover, you know, um, and, and, and not repeatedly, but you certainly can take some risks. And on the other side of that, we have seen payoff um, quite beautifully. So you, ju you just have to give people a little bit of hope that yeah. you, can, you can dream big, you can be audacious in your thinking and allow people to create a freedom to to do that and and you, you won't you won't punish them uh, if they dream really big and, and perhaps fail one time like give them another shot yeah there's nothing worse isn't there when you see a rare breed who's had their back broken trying things where you, and you sometimes see them in those workshops and you may have heard oh this person's really innovative and they're standing there and you can tell that they're just they've just capitulated they've just given in and it's oh, it's horrible that and you know, that's one of the drivers for me of the work that we do and even the show and sharing, you know, trying to ignite that fire that's inside people again. But I wanted to bring it back to something you said, Sonny, because we were, we were saying there about the authenticity and 
I, I see the same thing. So one of my parts of my role is corporate coaching or executive coaching. So I work with a, a few executives. And I always start with the personal purpose first. So what are your values? What's your personal purpose? And I see a company the exact same way, like the company is just a collection of individuals. So the company needs to understand corporate body that what its personal purpose is, what its values are, but they need to be authentic. Because to your point, then, it helps you make decisions. Like, for example, that honey company, you kind of go, this doesn't sit right with me. Let's have a quick look at our, our, our motto, our mission statement, our values. Now nah, this doesn't fit. And the same happens then on an individual level. And that helps you make decisions. That's a huge part that's often overlooked in all this work. No, I think that companies and organizations like have to dig into their values. They need to know what they will what, what will withstand the pressure test. And so a, a dramatic piece of our work is actually helping companies codify what those call to arms are. And more importantly, can you live, can you live up to them? Because when you give yourself a very tall order, all eyes on you. Sony, we mentioned um, duality, and I'm I'm going to give you a little quote here as a lens through which to see this duality as we look at the virtues in particular, because as you said, the virtues are both vices or virtues depending on how you major in it. And I'm going to little quote here to tee us up. You say for rare breeds, the impulses that uplift us can also undo us. Set loose without morality or control, hot blooded passion can lead to rage and reckless destructive acts. Charisma can spiral into a force that manipulates and defrauds. Obsessive perfectionism can lead to compulsive behaviors, endless work, burnout and alienation. And rebels can lose sight of their cause and go on a rampage for the sake of sheer destruction. So this is when we get into that mode of, of anger because nobody's listening, for example. Then I'm going to tee up virtue one. So virtue one is rebellious. And each time Sonny and Ashley introduce a new virtue, they also introduce the synonyms, and also then the vice and virtue side. So I'm going to do that for each of these. And then you take it away, whichever way you like, Sonny. So virtue one is rebellious, the synonyms include defiant, disruptive, ungovernable, rogue, or insubordinate. And from an asset perspective, from a virtue perspective, when your rebellious spirit is harnessed to push boundaries, confront wrongs, give a voice to the voiceless or birth something unprecedented, that's the positive side. But the flip side then is we've all been conditioned to believe that rebels are troublemakers, renegades and lawbreakers. The connotations of the word can be misleading. The word rebel suggests leather jacketed teens with bad attitudes tatted up punk rockers or mischievous outsiders. And that's the challenge when you know, you're introduced into a company and kind of go this person's a corporate rebel and you go, Oh, I don't want that. That's too much to manage for me. So over to you to take it away. Corporate rebels have, you know, zero tolerance for what doesn't work, you know, they push against authority and precedent and uh, the word of experts to see how hard that they push back. But I'm finding that, um, in the organizations that we've worked with, when I see a rebel in the boardroom or within a workshop, for example, that we're working on, I often find that they ask very tough questions and tough questions in a way that we need to be thinking about. E even if we have done something the way that it's always been done, and perhaps it's working, maybe it's working well, but can it work well forever? And I think that 
rebels often will push a little bit to just kind of, you know, throw a little bit of ruckus into the room to, to see how they can be uh, challenging what those, those petrified beliefs are. And I'm, I find that they're an incredible asset uh, within teams, especially so really quickly, I want to drop this in here, but we have a quiz that we created with a um, professor and psychologist. It's called the rare breed quiz. And I think close to maybe 60,000 people at this point have taken the quiz with, with no, no marketing around it at all, which is mind blowing. Uh, but in the quiz, you can, you can take these 28 questions and they're ambiguous on purpose because they're meant to sort of tease out which of the dominant traits are working within you. And what was really interesting, uh, and we, we use this quiz when we go into organizations, sometimes we'll have their teams take the quiz so we can actually pinpoint like who within that team, say there's a team of 30, we can actually pinpoint within the team, how many rebels they have, how many audacious thinkers they have, who's sort of an, you know, empath, um, who's a bit of an oddball, you know, we can actually like sort of chart them out. Uh, and, and we can also see where maybe there's gaps in their thinking as well. And perhaps where they might need to think about hiring for these types of traits. Uh, but what's really interesting that I've seen is in, in, in 20, in 2020, the trait that we saw dominant across the quiz that from people that had taken the quiz globally, globally was emotion. So it told me in 2020, we were kind of an emotional bunch. Um, in 2021, it was rebellious. So what's interesting to me is to see the dynamic between the two years of like what people were feeling in 2020 versus what they're feeling in 2021. And I believe that we're seeing because of this great resignation, the rebelliousness that people are tired of the status quo and they are rebelling against it. They were rebelling against a new future for themselves. So I just, I'm, you know, I, I, I love rebels. I love working with them. I have many rebels on my own team. And I encourage them to speak up and I love to hear what they have to say, because a lot of times they see the, the world in ways that perhaps I don't because I'm an audacious thinker. Um, so you didn't ask that, but I'm going to tell you what my, my dominant trait is audacity. My secondary trait is actually obsession. So I'm a real joy to work with. Uh, but, <laughs> but I love rebels because I understand them. There's a piece of audacity that pulls from rebellion. Uh, and when you can really channel a rebellious spirit within the company. It is, boy, can you do some amazing things? I can guess you wrote the chapter then on obsession. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Right. I had a heavy hand in that chapter. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have to include that. We'll have to include that one because I, I recognized a lot of stuff in that one. Um, so, so just to explain to our audience, so there, there's a, a, a kind of, um, a duality in the book as well between the the virtues the positive and and not so positive traits of that virtue but then there's mantras that ashley and sunny that recommend or that they unpack for us as well so we'll share some of those mantras as well and for anybody listening in the car i know some of you listen with your kids in the car i'm going to just change, change some a, of the words a consonant on this uh, next word so the first one is to funk norms and I'll set you up here again, Sonny, with a quote. Norms begin as behaviors or social codes that make the majority of people feel safe and operate at ease. Given enough time to sit unchallenged, norms harden, I love this, 
norms harden like petrified wood and turn into rigid beliefs. This is the way things are done. Most people don't question them. The few that do are punished. Without norms that tell us what we should or shouldn't do, our world would be chaos and we wouldn't know how to navigate it. Or, as you say, so we're told. Yeah, so, well, I think most of us are taught from an early age that success is conditional, that you have to change who you are to succeed. You're better off if you get a fancy education, you land a job, you grind down your prickly points, you don't ruffle feathers, you keep your head down, you play it safe, you march in time like a dutiful soldier. The whole goal is to help you fit in. And that is what happened to Ashley and I in the very beginning of our journey was that we were taught to keep our heads down, to stop asking all these tough questions. You know, who did we think we were? These two young girls, quote unquote, girls coming in uh, with his wild hair and, 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 and pushing on executives that were, you know, three times older than we were and, and challenging their belief systems. And what right did we have to be questioning their authority? You know, you're encouraged to develop yourself, but only in a way that makes everyone else feel safe and comfortable. And, you know, when it looks like you're, you might become something or be something that goes against the grain, that's when you get labeled defiant, dangerous, and different. It's never meant as a compliment. You've been pressured to make those things invisible. And after a while, I think you don't remember who you are or what made you special in the first place. Like we have a habit, I think, societally of, of beating out the most important parts of people sometimes, you know, and it's because they don't fit. And, you know, that's why we believe so much in the word rare breed is because when you think of other words to describe people like that, they're, they're, they're words like misfit, outlier, uh, you know, you're the ugly piece of fruit. Rare breed is a badge of honor. That means you are unordinary among the kind. You are one of a kind. You are, there's no one else in the world like you. And that is a gift in and of itself. So, so when I think of the, the way that societally, it even is in parents and teachers and friends will often try to squash out these, these pieces of ourselves because they're uncomfortable. We don't understand them. And look what we do, even in our own companies. We bring that, not just who we are as kids, right? As And who we become shaped into as adults, but we bring that into how we lead. We bring that into how we manage. And, you know, there, we have a longstanding diversity problem. We have a long-term uh, leadership problem where if things don't fit nicely into a container, we don't know what to do with them. And so what do we ask people to do? We ask people to chunk a good chunk of themselves at the door to make us feel better, to not deal with all the humanness of what they bring. So how many of us have to show up as maybe a third of who we are at work because everything else behind us might be, you know, controversial or messy or our identity or, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, um, uh, we come from a, a diverse family or, you know, we have a wife or a husband or, a, you know, a trans partner. I mean, there's just so many things that life doesn't fit into and doesn't have a rule book or guard a, a guidebook for, and certainly not in business. And so I think it's, it's, it's up to us to try to figure out um, the answers to some of these problems so that we can make a more inclusive environment for the 
places in which all of us spend the majority of our time, which is at work. You know, when you mentioned about the ugly piece of fruit, I thought, I don't know if you've seen this, but in the UK, I don't know, it's one of the big brands. Misfit Market or something like that. (laughs) Yeah, they they basically are celebrating the ugly piece of fruit. Have you seen that? Yeah, I have. Well, I think there's something here too called Misfit's Market. I was like, what a clever play. Um, You know, they take they take ugly pieces of fruit and, and, you know, that are still good and uh, ship them out to you. But, you know, the truth is, is that opportunities are rare when you don't fit the mold. That's the thing. And, and, you know, I I saw when I saw that that shift in mindset about these fruit and kind of going, well, are these vegetables and kind of going, well, (laughs) these are going to go to waste if they're not accepted by people. I went I actually thought to myself, well, that's kind of a bit of an analogy for what's happening in the world, hopefully. And I, I, I mean, I understand. I mean, if you're a CEO of a company and you have a, a, a corner of the company who are rebels or rare breeds and you don't know what to do with them and there's nowhere to fit, that's a systemic problem. And I think that, you know, it, it goes back to school when we were in school and we were actually trained to be the polished piece of fruit. And then if you're not the polished piece of fruit, you don't fit in society. And then you, yeah, you're on the outside and looking in. Yeah. And then, and then you're wearing a mask and a job for the rest of your life. And that's tiring. I mean, rare, that's where I say that person who's had their spirit broken and they're sitting in the meeting and you're kind of going, what's wrong with you, Aiden? You used to be so full of ideas and you kind of going, why bother anymore? That's, that's a real tragedy. You for broke me them down. Yeah. They're wearing, they're wearing a mask to work. And that is so tired. I, I have a term for it. I call it reverse Dorian Grays, where the, you know the whole idea of the the portraits in the attic rotting away, but actually yeah. they're rotting away in plain sight, and their true self is hiding away in an attic mm-hmm. somewhere, mm-hmm. and it's pristine and it's rare breed and it's it's unique, but it's not allowed out to play because it doesn't fit anywhere. I think that's the real tragedy of all this. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I, I, you know, one thing that we take a lot of pride on at Motto is we've worked very hard to encourage an organization full of rare breed talent and people who can truly show up as themselves and and not be punished for it. And I think you know we're we're you know no one's perfect, right? We're always a work in progress, but uh, we 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 try very hard to create the conditions to allow people to thrive and to to we have had people who have come in to work for, for us who have been broken before. And it takes a bit of adjustment when they are onboarded and they begin working that they realize they look around and they go, wow, this isn't like any place I've ever worked. And it's almost like they can't even believe it. It's an absolute disbelief that, that something like this actually exists in the world. And it does. And I can point to many companies that do, and we've worked with many of them. And one of my favorite things to do is, is to go into companies like that, where you know, if if you think that business sort of prides itself on unique perspectives and innovative ideas, but we know that most of them get shut down, the danger of stripping away and discouraging idiosyncrasies is that we also smother that rebellious visionary fire that leads to great breakthroughs. And so when we can go into a company and sort of turn that light on, or at the very least, have people feel seen and by the time we're out of there, like they are operating in a slightly different way. It, you know, it might not be, they might not be at the, at the end of the journey where they need to be, you know, it's, we're all in sort of perpetual beta, but you know that you've left that organization in a much better place. You've left that brand in a much better place culturally, 
from a mindset standpoint, you know, culturally DNA significant wise, you've left them in a much better place than, than you found them. And it's one of my most exciting things that Ashley and I get letters all the time from people who are like, I've never felt seen. Uh, we did a, we did a, a talk recently. So we do a bunch of keynote speaking around, around this topic about how non-conforming people can be the keys to innovation. We uh, spoke at fast company innovation and there were just, the chat was just full of people just typing in, you know, I feel seen, I feel heard. Um, I've never thought of myself in this way. You've given me permission to be myself. and that. In, in and of itself is, is worth every bit of this because you can, you, you feel this awakening uh, when you're within companies uh, of people that, that know they are different and know that they bring something different. And what you're trying to do there is to, to help unlock a little bit of it, to, to remind them who they are so that they can then become the most incredible version of themselves. There's, there's, there's always a little transition piece there that I think is very important. Some people don't ever get there. You know, they never, they never luckily find the environment that allows them to fully be seen or perhaps work under and with a leader that knows how to do that. Um, but when you can, when you, when you can teach leaders who have otherwise not been able to unlock that within their team, how to do it, um, you know, we, we, it's, it's amazing what you hear about six months later, you check in on them and they're like, it's changed the entire way we run our company. Uh, and, and, and we're more innovative, we're more creative, we're more happy than we've been in a long time. And that's, that's the work that, that, that people should be doing, you know, um, it's exciting work to be involved in. It's so great for people to realize And, and you know, the longer they wear the mask, the more they become the mask. And, and that's why I think this work is so important and to share it and get it out there as much as possible to make people remember who they truly are. And that childlike imagination and wonder, those things that make you really creative need to be unlocked in people. And the workplace for most places don't doesn't doesn't accommodate that. But we'll keep moving. <laughs> we by the way, we have only got like past one virtue and one mantra and there's like <laughs> 30 odd in the book. I'm going to jump to a next mantra because this one is very typical for this show is that the status quo by its very nature will not give up without a fight. And the way you put that the mantra is to expect sabotage and you tell us political candidates have a term, they call it opposition research for their attempts to smear and discredit their opponents. And in a similar vein, rare breeds should expect sabotage, such as sh the Shobani saga reveals. I'd love if you share this one. This is a great story. I was unaware of this. But it shows that when you do shake things up, expect some repercussions. I think uh, Hamdi Yulakaya is a great example of this uh, founder and CEO of, of Chobani, where he began hiring refugees. And he faced deep, deep criticism, and also, you know, threats. And uh, I mean, people took it very seriously. And, you know, he could have easily folded. You know, and I think back to even Ashley and I's story, we tell a story in the book about being invited to uh, an agency uh, ran by the old guard who had been in, uh, we started just for some context setting. Ashley and I started in a small coastal town in South Carolina, a small population, only a few key players at the time, maybe three, yeah, three established kind of players in the advertising space. And they got wind of us um, and heard about that we had opened up shop in this tiny little warehouse and, you know, which ran by these two women who were 
trying to flip the script on what had been done. So we were kind of looking around and saw this homogenized thinking and vanilla, you know, ad creation and billboards and why did everything look like a golf ad? And, you know, we wanted to sort of flip the script and they invite us uh, to their office. And we sit at this sort of like King <laughs> table that's, you know, they're at one end and it's just like in the movies, the like group. they're at one, they have briefcases. It's, a, it's just a bunch of old, you know, white haired men and, and they've got briefcases and everybody's in a suit. And then here's Ashley and I, you know, uh, not in a suit, not with a briefcase at the other end of the table. And, you know, we, we go into to, to some funny story about that, but, you know, they had slid something across the table to get our opinions on, because I think they were just trying to suss us out because I think at some point we were starting to turn the corner and there were some people who were coming to us and saying like, you know, you're, you're, you're interesting in the way that you think and approach this. And we are looking for something different. They didn't know exactly what that different thing was. And we didn't exactly know what the different thing that, you know, was that we were offering at that point, we were so young, but we knew that we were asking very tough questions and more from a place of curiosity of, well, why do you run the company this way? Or, you know, why, what's the purpose of the company? Like, what are you trying to solve in the world? And these were sort of very non-assuming childlike questions, but they were questions that they had not been asked. And we began to start to make the connections around why these things were very important to, to business and ultimately communicating your vision uh, to a team. And why should anyone care about that vision and or purpose and or message uh, that you were trying to create? So, you know, I remember just being sort of in that moment, them looking at us like, are you a threat? Are you not a threat? And almost trying to scare tactic us out of business. And at one point, we don't tell the story of this, but at one point they had, they had uh, uh, two years after we were in business, they had stolen our brand identity. So we, we drew, and they had a huge office sitting on the, the main road and had taken our, you know, anybody who looked at that would know that those were our brand colors are a very similar logo and had stolen sort of some of our taglines. And we said, well, you know what? Good on you. You know, we'll just create something different because that's the thing that I think People like that, innovators can't, non-innovators can't uh, wrap their head around is that innovative people have more ideas. Sometimes they have better ideas and they continue to have ideas. So, you know, I think when you think of, of, of the idea of expecting sabotage, I think when you threaten the established order in any sense of the way, when you are ever perceived as any bit of a, a threat, you will face criticism you will you will be sabotaged. You will people will try to bring you down. And I think that you know the the what you have to realize is that you can withstand that, and you can outsmart and outthink and outwork those who are trying to tear you down in that period of time. And I think I think Chobani is a great example of that. You know, not only a company who survived but is now thriving. And the thing that was seen as the thing that was a negative has now been turned into a positive and what now what companies are saying that they should do more of. So you're always any, any first to market's going to take the arrows in the back. Um, I took many arrows in, in the back, uh, but you know, I came to accept it. I think the difference between, uh, you know, rare breeds is they, 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 they don't, they don't fold. They, they may kind of get down on their spirit a bit, but you always need somebody to see within you 
what you're gifted at. And what I have encouraged a lot of people who read the book, who have been perhaps a rare breed that have, have been silenced at different points, what I then encourage them to do, as a matter of fact, in our talks, one of the last things that we say on stage is we say, at the end of this, go outside, you know, pick up a phone, call somebody, call a rare breed that you know, and tell them that you see them. Tell them that you you know that they're they're unique and different and that you see them for all of who they are. And it's amazing like what happens when we start to acknowledge the rare breed in other people, how good that feels because it turns it away from being a negative into a positive. And so, you know, if I can encourage more people, even people listening right now, they're probably, they're either thinking of themselves or they're thinking of numerous people that they know going, oh yeah, they're, they're totally a rare breed, you know, like let them know because sometimes we're not seen. So the more that you can be a vessel for seeing others and encouraging it rather than suppressing it, whether it's your child I know many parents of a rare breed child right now who've actually reached out and been like, give me some <laughs> tips. You know, I've got a bit of a, a rare breed in, in, in my kid lineup. What, what should I do? Um, but if you can see that and you can recognize it and you can celebrate it, uh, I, think, I think we'll have happier cultures and happier people out in the world. Beautiful. And, uh, you know, I often think of that term special needs or, or, or exceptional children. Like every child has special needs and is exceptional. Like they're, every child is different. And some can just like from I, I often think of my own experience in school, I was able to operate in society the way society expected me to. But I never let the rare breed element die inside me. And that's, that's one of the drivers from all this work is like your battle cry there for people don't let the person don't let the breed die inside of you. We need rare breeds because rare breeds change the world. I'd love to get in at least two more virtues before we finish. We're Why don't we talk onto... about obsession? That's a good one. I really wanted to talk about audacious as well, because uh, so if we did two and three, which are uh, audacious and obsessed, it'd be great. And I'll start off with, with audacious. I, one of the reasons I love audacious is I, I have this list of people, Sonny, of people, I call it the people I would have loved to have interviewed. And one of them is Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I wear a pin to prime myself to get into the zone every time I do a show. And the pin I have today is Ruth Bader Ginsburg here. I'll just show it to the audience on that camera as well. And um, what she, she is really this, she, she was a rare breed. She managed to navigate, you can imagine not only what she did, but in the time she did it, uh, being a female at the time, being a woman in that world where it wasn't okay for her, according to the society, to to change. And this ba this badge by this says it just says I dissent, which is just I thought. Talk, I was kind of going, what what can I use as a as a symbol for rare breed? And, and she came to mind, and I had the pin. I was like, she's yes. the ultimate. Yeah, so I was like, she's the ultimate. Very and fitting. Very fitting. I'll tell you again with with the synonyms for audacious. I include bold, ambitious, visionary, unstoppable, and daring. And it's an asset when sh when unshakable conviction in a crazy vision unlocks futures that don't exist and inspires people to attempt the impossible. It's a weakness when egotism breeds a reckless disregard for reality and the inability to acknowledge one's shortcomings. And you and Ashley displayed this virtue in a famous women in business event. Maybe we'll share that story. <laughs> oh, that's yeah, that's an interesting story. Uh, yeah, no, audacity is 
being a bit of a prophetic visionary, unless it spirals into reckless hubris, which we all know can be kind of the undoing side of that. I think we need uh, audacious thinkers to move the world forward. I think audacity shows itself in moments that you would otherwise think are not important, that become very um, uh, important moments in your own life and career and work, and even in your own company. You know, thinking back to that story of of being in the being in that room with all these executives and sort of being doubted and 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 being audacious enough to walk out of there still with our head held high that we could do this. The, the, the audacity is having the self-belief that it's not, is it crazy? It's, is it crazy enough? That's what, that's what audacious thinkers do. As a matter of fact, that's the premise of our next book. And I think that uh, specifically one story comes to mind. We, we, we do tell the story a bit, but Ashley, my co-author and co-founder, um, she was in a, we were in a business competition and uh, it was probably two, two or three years into business, very young, very, very naive. Go down, go down to Atlanta to, to participate in a women's business competition where what you won, if you were to win the, or win the competition, was life-changing for a company of our size and, and, and our newness. Uh, you got a line of credit from American Express. You got mentorship. You got press. You, you, uh, you were able to get a Cisco package, like an entire IT setup. I mean, it was absolutely game changing. You know, NBC was there. Like this is this is big. You know, there's cameras everywhere. And the day before the the pitch, you had to go up, and the the concept was you had to go up and pitch your business, and you pitched your business in front of a, an esteemed panel of judges, women who had achieved great things in their career. Um, one of them had created, you know, take your daughter to work day. And just, you know, we're, these were pretty substantial figures, you know, the, the Mayweathers of, of, of entrepreneurship, right? And here we are, the youngest women in the competition. All of these other women that we were up against had achieved, had multi-million dollar companies. You know, I think we had maybe 600 bucks in our account. Um, we were really you know, just, just, just a few minutes away from, from not, not being able to, uh, to, to keep the doors open. And we go down and, and pitch, uh, do a practice pitch in front of the judges and Ashley gets up there. And at the time she's like 23 years old, right? Like we're young. Uh, and you know, all these women had gotten up and they're talking about all their figures and all their accomplishments. And, you know, they're practicing the pitch round. And the, the goal was to get like a little bit of feedback of, you know, what you should perfect or refine or polish in order for you to, to, to be in front of the, the, the big crowd the next day. So she gets up to pitch the company and just blanks, like doesn't remember what the name of the company is, she forgets like, you know, we don't have very much revenue to really talk about, forgets like some of the things that we had done that were that were notable, but you know, we're not at the level to some of the other companies that that were certainly we were up against. Uh, but our story was compelling. And so she just freezes and immediately, and they were a tough. Uh, panel of judges, they, they immediately say, you don't know your business. You, this is, you, you, you don't know what you're doing. You're, you're in over your head. You shouldn't be here. Oh, like just, just crush. And I, I could just see like Ashley just kind of 
go, go a little bit pale, you know, and, and, and I could just see that that had kind of crushed her in that moment. And so she flees off stage and then I'm in this, like in the, you know, there's thousands of people at this place. Right. And so I, she's like wandering around, like has bolted and I'm trying to figure out like, you know, are we leaving? Are we going? And she's like, I'm leaving. I don't want to do it. I want to go home. And I'm meanwhile, she's at the bar. So she, she, she like goes to the bar and is drinking a bit. And, uh, you know, and I'm like, I, I don't think we should leave. You know, I'm, I'm trying to be the voice of reason here. I'm like, if we leave, they win. And I said, we, we'll never forgive ourselves if we do this. And she said, nope. She, she was just hand hand up. I'm not doing it. I'm not going back up there. I'm embarrassed. I'm, I'm done. And so we couldn't leave that evening because it was a little bit too late and we were, we had driven down there. And so I, you know, she, she's getting a little bit tipsy. And, and, and so I start rewriting the pitch on a bar napkin because I'm like on the off chance that I can convince her to stay. Maybe I can rewrite this in such a way that she can, she can feel confident about going up there. So I rewrite while she's drinking, I'm rewriting on a bar napkin, basically napkin after napkin, the entire rewrite of the pitch. And the next morning, bags are packed. We're at breakfast. We're about to leave. And I slid the napkins across the table. I stayed up all night rewriting it. And I slid the napkins across the table and I said, just, just read it. And, and she gets real quiet. And I'm like, just, just, just take a look. And I said, if, if we leave, if we walk out of here, we will never, we will never live this down. And she's like, okay. So she, she like, you know, looks at the napkins, scurries back to the bed and all the women are going up on stage, like to get in front of the microphone. And she's the last one that comes in. She's one of nine, um, com- competitors and she's the last one. And she scurries up on the stage, last one to go. And I knew, <clears throat> I knew when she walked up to, you know, all the other women went and I knew when she walked up to the, to the podium that she was just going to slay the room. Cause I think at that point she was mad, you know, she was like, all right, this is the, this is the rebel coming out now. And I just, I remember seeing her like pull the microphone down and just, I was like, she is going to slay this room. She ended up getting a standing ovation from the people who had criticized her and ended up winning was, was the youngest woman to ever win that. And it was huge for our business because I think it was a big turning point. It was a confidence boost, but it was also one of those moments that you talk about audaciousness. When you either fold or you step up to the podium, you step up to the plate, you throw that knockout punch. It's like, that's your moment. And audacious is a trait that I just think serves you very well in moments like that. When you are doubted, when people are making fun of you, when they think you were going to fail, when they tell you you're going to fail, it is the moment that defines you. And audacity is one of those traits that I believe make or break you at many points in time during your own career and and your work and even your own business. You know, like when you have the chance to play it safe or to make an audacious move, I always push our clients to be audacious. I'm like, audacity is where it's at. Like you will be forgotten. You know, it's so easy to be forgotten. First you're ridiculed, then you're revered. And that is what I, what's really funny is that's what I wrote on the, on the back of the napkin. Beautiful, beautiful. It was written for you. It was written in the stars. But, you know, <laughs> that was very cool. The same thing happened to me with the show. I was told to stop doing the show. I worked in a role. 
my boss at the time is like, yeah, I need to stop doing that show. You know, and also you're not very good at it, <laughs> right? That was this is six years ago. Love yeah. that. You're not very yeah. good at it. I remember the morning coming in, really, but it was a really cush, cushy. We call it a cushy number in Ireland. It was easy, well paid, great pension. And I remember looking in the mirror and going, "You are going to rot if you stay here." And that's where that term "reverse Dorian Gray" came to mind. And I just, I, I, I always same thing. I just go. These are almost these. I, I call them call them milestones, not millstones. So they're moments where the universe goes, "What are you going to do, kid? What are you going to do, kid?" And you will never regret it. You'll never ever regret doing the right thing. And I think that's the same when you know you saw that that behavior by a CEO to the CMO, and you stood up for what was right. You will never regret it. You'll regret not doing what's right. Silence is compliance. Oh, big time, big time. This next one really resonated with me because of a particular term. I was I, I, I used to I wasn't that talented, but I worked really, really hard. So discipline and obsession <laughs> really helped me actually achieve. But one of the things I used to do was I used to with my diet, I used to I called it rinsing the mince. So I'd get mince meat, I'd boil it, I'd let it cool and I'd scrape off the fat off the top that would harden. And then I'd eat it, right. <laughs> and it reminded me of obsession, because you you talked about massaging the octopus, which is an even better one than rinsing the mince. So maybe we'll use that as a tee up for this next one obsession. Yeah, I think obsession is something that <clears throat> haunts many people. Uh, it's certainly one of my traits that at times, has been a hindrance in my career, to be totally frank. Uh, it has it has paralyzed me at times with this pursuit of perfection. And I think for many people, obsession is one that can be very dark and can hold you back in in many ways. You know, it's when you're ruminating, when you're when you're 24/7, always on, you know, sometimes you're forgoing water and and being dehydrated, you know, and food and just necessities, right? In order to to serve serve the work. And I think when you're obsessed with something, uh, it 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 can it is probably the most temperamental of the traits in that it is can be very destructive and also very frustrating if you have the trait and you're working with teammates who are not. Uh, it, I have seen it be one of the challenges in, in many companies when you when you have somebody at that level who is has the obsession trait um, or the dominant trait, they're often very difficult to work with because their standards are, you know, there there is no measure, right? And you never know if you're actually meeting um, their the measurement of what they see in their head. And so I think that for for obsession, it 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 is a trait that when harnessed in the right ways it becomes a diligence, it becomes a superpower, it becomes a tool. You speak of you being a rugby player and some of the crazy, I'm sure, rituals and ideas and things that you did in order to maintain your body and, and your performance. I think a great example of this is Tom Brady, who I'm a big fan of. And I think his diet and his diligence and the way that his work ethic, I mean, look at him, You know the, the, the amount of Super Bowls that he's been able to win, the type of leader that he is. Uh, he is the blueprint of obsession at its highest in terms of being obsessed with not putting things in your body that you shouldn't and you know treating it as the ultimate vessel. And I think in work and in life and in business, obsession is a powerful trait in that you want to be able to put a stamp on your work that you are proud of and that you feel has reached the level 
of, of, of whatever aspirations that you had for yourself. I think Steve Jobs was a great example of this as well, of, of, of understanding the importance of being obsessed with the details, but also making it a linchpin and a core pillar of, of Apple to this day. Uh, I think it is something that has to be treated with caution, both in your own career, but also within your own company. If that is some you you employ that or have this kind of obsessive mindset, I think you have to ensure that there's guardrails around it and understand how it works and where the dangers of it lurk. You know, um, we tell a, a story in the book about a client that we had that wanted um, a, 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 a chipmunk on the front of their packaging. And it was food that was for um, adults and humans. And every time we designed the package, it looked like rodent food and we could not get away from this. And we had, we had just sketches everywhere. I was dreaming of chipmunks. I was seeing chipmunks and everything. I was seeing them on the highway. I was like, could not like solve this piece of the pie. And, uh, and, you know, we, we just, we would not quit. I mean, at one point I think we had slept in the office just trying to get this, this, this figure, this chipmunk, right. So that it did, it could actually live on a human, you know, whole food shelf. Right. And, and be able to connect the vision to the, to the ultimate package. So, uh, that that's when, when obsession was, was not working in our favor, but in the beginning, you know, we were not sleeping and not eating, but once we got to the point where we kind of had cracked it, then we were able to sort of like move. But a lot of times obsession is one of those traits that they keep you burning really hard, really late, really, really push a taxing on your emotional and mental and physical systems. I'd love to keep going. I know you you have another appointment that you need to get to. I pulled a couple of quotes that I usually finish on. There were so many that I had that I loved in the book. Uh, I'll, I'll just mention a couple of them. But while I'm doing that, I'd love you to think about your final motto, your final war cry for our audience for the rare breeds that are listening to us. But before I even go there, where can people find out more about you about motto, but also about the rare breed course? So we are everywhere at we are motto, we are motto.com. Um, on social, on LinkedIn, on Instagram, you can find us there. You can also, if you want to dig into Rare Breed a little bit further, you can take the Rare Breed quiz, which is at rarebreedquiz.com. Or if you want to find a little bit more out about the workshops that we do around Rare Breed leadership, uh, you can um, tackle that at rarebreedleaders.com. I'm going to finish up with my quote, and then I'm going to hand the mic to you to finish today's show. I I have three, but I'm going to just pick two of, two of them here uh, with your time in mind. The first is rare breed rebels are often considered outrageous at the time until their radical natures are recognized as tools for change and societal development. We admire and revere those who risk everything to stand up for what they believe is right. Even if we don't agree with their cause, we love that they can fight for it. The second, the traits we discovered, you and Ashley, aren't vices or things to fear. They are your greatest assets in becoming the creative, the leader, the human being you want to be. Although society often forces us to conform our undesirable qualities, we can harness them, priming us to live and lead in ways we never thought possible. Know this, you are not average. You already have what it takes to succeed and stand out. There are many ways to be a rare breed as there are as many people who know they have more to give in the world. 
I love those quotes, Sonia. I had so many to choose from. But what about you? What's your fi- final motto, your final war cry for our audience today? So we have a coin that we give to people that we meet um, that have come, you know, to 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 see us or meet us at book signings and yeah, you know, clients. Um, and even if you somebody that's listening to this right now, if you write to me, um, it's just Sunny Bonnell or Sunny at WeAreMotto.com. If you email me, I'll send you this coin. Uh, but on one of the side of the coins, it says uh, vice, and on the other side, it says virtue. And the borderland between dark and light sides of our nature are often murky and indistinct. These traits are incredibly powerful and you have to know what you're doing with them. It's like holding a a, a lightsaber, you know, you have to know what you're doing with these seven traits specifically. And so what I would encourage people to kind of think about if, if there is a motto at all that I can depart is that you have to own who you are. You have to own who you are in a world that wants to own you. You have to be able to wrestle your vision forward in a world that's trying to stop you. And the only way that you can do that is by owning all of who you are, not just the pretty parts. You have to succeed because of who you are, not despite who you are. Author of Rare Breed, A Guide to Success for the Defiant, Dangerous, and Different, Sonny Bonnell, thank you for joining us. Wow, this was a, such a cool conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Sonny, awesome. Thank you so much. I'm sorry I went over. I was like, man, I could just talk about this all day. Oh, same, you know? here. <laughs> same here. Thanks as always to our partners over at Zai, a global fintech that's building integrated financial services for digital native and non-native businesses. Check them out at hellozai.com and I'll see you next week. 